the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Monday, January 22nd edition of The Ride Home. I would say the big chill is on, right? Yeah, uh, but we're, we're looking forward to Wednesday and Thursday. Temperatures in the 50s. Yeah, or even 40s, I yeah. would take. I mean, but it's cold out. Yeah, it's been very cold. It's just crazy. Dogs all over the country, or at least in western Pennsylvania, have been pining to get for a walk. I know. They right? don't understand it's what's happened. All their owners are very, very lazy. Seriously. I mean, you go out there. Owners. They don't, dogs don't think of you as their owner. Human. No, they think they own us. Yeah, exactly. That's what they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Good weekend? Yeah. It was a fine weekend, John. Mm-hmm. Got my daughter back to college Excellent. yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so we had a nice long vacation break. The final um, semester? Final semester of her college career. It was our last move-in. Mm. We were all just talking about how we just can't believe it. What floor is she on? One. Oh, that's easy. It's the best. Yeah. It's really the you're best. You're in the upper floors. She's been on one for the last two years, and I'm a big fan. Drag and all Huge that stuff fan up and of down one. the steps. Yep. Huge mm-hmm. fan. Very good. Yeah, so it's, you know, you spend so much time thinking about college for your kids. And then those four years go by really fast. Yeah. For, really, for really do. fast. Yeah. Maybe not for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's really ready to be done. But it so, is over. That's good. Yeah. Here's the other thing, John. Uh, that marks the end of my uh, holiday era for 2023 slash 24. Oh, really? Okay. So that's it. So I started back. <clears throat> I started my workout plan on Saturday, starting the eating plan today. Mm. And it's January's hard. I mean, a lot of people do this starting January 2nd, but, you know, since we just have a longer thing. Right. Or at least I have a longer thing in my head. But now we're back to reality. All right. Okay. So you're going to be good from now on. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be good, but I'm certainly going to try to be consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay. We had a small group last night. We had sodas and cookies. Oh, and, sure. I mean, cheese and you name it. We sure. had a little party there. That sounds terrific. I mean, I mean you, you can't not have parties. No. I'm not interested in a life you without have to parties. Entertain. Yeah. Well, you have to enjoy your life. Yeah. But day to day. I mean, I can't eat like I've been eating for the last month. All right. Did you gain weight? I did. Poundage? Yes. Poundage. Five. Three. <laughs> Kidding me? Yeah, That's, but I'm a small. Per- the beach. I'm a small person, right. so three pounds is a lot on you me. You notice three pounds? I need, I need, I need to really? drop ten. I notice three pounds. Like, oh, it's change in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up on today's program in the five o'clock hour, uh, why DeSantis's exit could hurt Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which seems like it wouldn't be the case, but we're going to hear what Politico has to say about that. Um, also, why it's hard to be optimistic about mainline churches? Now we're just talking about attendance. We're talking about enthusiasm, all those sorts of things. Uh, Ryan Burge is going to be with us. He's a professor of political science, and his gig is to just go in there and, and just crush numbers. Charts, graphs. Ah, uh, man. And he is really good at it. So if you're a mainliner, 
or if you are someone who's interested in that sort of thing, then uh, 510 is going to be your time. Also, the Pennsylvania State Senate is proposing three mental health days, John, in a school year without a doctor's excuse. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we are finally coming around to the importance of mental health education, or does that mean we're just weak? All that and more on the Monday edition of The Ride Home. But without further ado, Kathy, you got news stories. Please give us the top four at four. For Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Number one. Relatives of Israeli hostages being held by militants in the Gaza Strip, John, stormed Israel's parliament, the Knesset, in Jerusalem today in protest of the government's failure to bring their loved ones home. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with the families of hostages at the Prime Minister's office in Jerusalem, telling them there's, quote, no real proposal from Hamas on the table right now. Quote, contrary to what they say, there is no real proposal. He said, I say this as clearly as I can because there are so many false things that must be tormenting you. In contrast, there is an initiative of ours, but I will not elaborate. Read more about that at today's ABC News. Number two, after four decades in the making, listen to that, 40 years, there is finally hope for the widespread prevention of malaria across Africa as a new vaccine is rolled out across the continent. It's a huge day because today in Cameroon, the first routine vaccination program against malaria got underway. Cameroon hopes to vaccinate roughly 250,000 children over the next two years. It seems hard to believe that Africa's biggest killer is a tiny insect, but but almost every minute, an African child dies with malaria. Wow. I mean, that is that is an absolutely huge thing. The plan is for some 30 million doses of the vaccine to be administered in the coming months all across participating nations. Excellent. Isn't that, wow, that's incredible. I mean, we talk about bad news all the time, yep. and we talk about hungry kids, and we talk about lack of clean water, and all those things are real. But we need to pause when there is, you know, a shot across the bow, something really malaria. terrific happening Jeez. on the other side of the globe. And that, that is it. That's from today's CBS News. Number three. Now, this is not good news. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is a Harvard Medical School affiliate, is seeking to retract six studies and correct 31 other papers as part of a probe involving four of its senior cancer researchers and administrators. Did you hear about this? Yes. More than 50 papers, including four co-authored by Chief Executive and President Dr. Laurie Glimcher, are part of a continuing review. Some requests for retractions and corrections have already been sent to journals. Others are being prepared. The Institute has yet to determine whether misconduct actually occurred. But four researchers involved have faculty appointments at Harvard, making it the latest lot of misconduct allegations leveled at Harvard researchers, including Claudine Gay, the university president who had to resign after facing allegations of plagiarism, and also what she said about not being able to exactly identify when (laughs) when, uh, genocide is okay and when it's not. Also, last year, and I forgot about this, Harvard Business School placed Professor Francesca Gino on administrative leave after accusations that her work contained falsified data. Things not good at Harvard right now. The ivory towers are crumbling. And number four, a drawing that was housed in a Pittsburgh museum and believed to be stolen by the Nazis during the Holocaust returned to its heirs on Friday. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg announced Portrait of a Man by Austrian artist Egon Scheile was returned to the family of Fritz Grunbaum, an Austrian Jewish cabaret performer whose art collection was stolen by the Nazi regime. The drawing from 1917 valued at about a million dollars and was housed at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Oakland since the 1960s. And that is your top four at four.
for. Fascinating story, isn't it? It really right. is. The artwork disappeared. How many people lost so many things? So many. Their lives and uh, their livelihoods and all the different things that went with that. Uh, really interesting story. So good news for the family. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We're underway here. It's the ride home. We are Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. The radio station is 101.5 Word FM. That's W-O-R-D. evangelical or a Christian or a Christ follower or a believer? Are you asking me? Yes. Well, I don't like to call myself evangelical anymore. Did you once? Yeah, of course. Oh, did you? Yeah. But it just seems like it carries a whole backpack full of other assumptions from people. I hate to say that because evangelical is supposed to be a, you know, kind of a theological or church term. Now it's become kind of a societal term or, or even a political term. Roger Olson is with us. He's an emeritus professor of Christian theology at Baylor University, author of more than 20 books. We follow Roger at the Pathios website. He wrote a really interesting piece, Is Evangelical Now a Political Identity? Roger, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Roger, I call myself a Christian. I've been a follower of Jesus for as long as I can remember. Um, And I would have called myself an evangelical up until 2016, probably. But in the last four or five years, I've gotten, John and I both have gotten uncomfortable with that term. And I I don't feel like I've changed. Um, But I do feel like the label of that term has. Can, Can you talk about your perspective on it? Yeah, the label of the term has changed in the media in the United States. And I still call myself an evangelical because I don't give up on good words very easily. And I try through my blog and other writings to educate people about what the word evangelical really means, using history, theology, and spirituality, and of course the Bible. So I still call myself an evangelical because I was born into that tradition, I was born again after I was born, but I was raised in that tradition. Uh, and to me, it's, it simply signifies a Christian, so therefore someone who believes that Jesus is um, God and Savior, and um, believes that the Bible is the Word of God, but also that Christian life begins really with conversion and in faith and repentance. And so I still call myself a, an evangelical. If someone asks me uh, I'll, uh, if I'm an evangelical, I always say, how long do you have to listen? <laughs> because I really can't, I can't give you a simple answer. And if they don't have very long, I'll say, well, I'm a Billy Graham kind of evangelical. Billy Graham still remains for me kind of the standout um, leader or the, uh, or the representative of at least American evangelicalism. And then I say, to them if, if they say, well, what about politics? And I'll, on the use of the word evangelical, today in America, I say, well, look, evangelicalism is a worldwide phenomenon. It's a worldwide theological spiritual movement, and it's not confined to America. There are many more evangelicals outside of America than inside of America. So I'm not going to allow whatever is happening in one country to define evangelical mm-hmm. for me. I'm a world evangelical, not an American evangelical per se. Yes. 
But the news media, as you rightly claim, uh, Roger, has, uh, especially the New York Times or the Washington Post, left-leaning newspapers, have coined the term uh, evangelical, which means more so uh, that you may be a follower of President, former President Trump. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is most people who are self-described evangelicals don't even attend church. They're more interested in politics, Yeah. Right. Right. That's the latest word that's come out, and that's what I was talking about on my blog most recently on this subject. I often blog about the meaning of evangelical, but most recently, I think it was the New York Times published an article saying that um, evangelical is, is now a political identity, and it argued, and I'm not sure what polls they were drawing on, uh, but some polls that showed that many— uh, Many. I don't know how what percentage of people who call themselves evangelicals uh, support Trump and the Republican Party and so forth, but don't even go to church. Yes. And to me, someone who doesn't go to church and whose loyalty, commitment, and and interest lies mainly in politics uh, cannot, by definition, be an evangelical. Because there should uh, be a pol- evan- there should be a political term for that, right, Roger? Not yeah, necessarily a theological term. Well, and there used to be the religious right is the term that arose in, I believe, the late 70s, early 80s, and and went through permutations of meaning and so forth with different people, Pat Robertson and others representing that. But that didn't include all evangelicals and still, um, you know, political right wing interests and commitments and things. Not all evangelicals are committed to that. But I guess they're saying about 80% of people who call themselves evangelicals in America are that. But to me, evangelical is a historical thing. It's it's a movement that really began after the Reformation among uh, what were called pietists. Uh, some have called it the Second Reformation in the 1700s. And then the Great Awakening, uh, two Great Awakenings, the first one with Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and the emphasis on being born again is really uh, what evangelical means as a standout definition. An evangelical is an Orthodox Christian, that is Orthodox in doctrine, who believes that um, everyone needs to be born again by the Spirit of God and come to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if they really do that um, from the heart, then I call them an evangelical, no matter what their political leanings are. Yes. Roger Olson is with us. He writes at the Pathios blog. We're talking about his one of his latest is evangelical now a political identity. Roger, you, you drill down into a lot of interesting, especially history in your uh, article is evangelical now a political identity, and you bring up something called the Barman Declaration of the Confessing Church of Germany. This is fascinating. It's a historical precedent, and you say uh, that we, we as Christians, especially courageous Christians, and the leaders of the evangelical church should read this and think about this, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the Barman Declaration was written in the 1930s by people like um, Karl Barth, a theologian from Switzerland who was teaching theology in Germany when Hitler came to power. Now, he was expelled from Germany because he refused to lead his classes in the Hitler salute and of loyalty to Hitler. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very well-known German theologian in the 1930s who was executed by the Nazis at the end of World War II, uh, helped write the Barman Declaration. And it was a declaration that really, the main essence of it was simply saying, only Jesus Christ is Führer. No other person than Jesus Christ is our true Führer, in the sense of absolute leader. 
And so it was a reaction to the claim that Hitler was a leader, not only of a nation state, Germany, but also kind of of, of, of all the right-thinking people, including Christians, and they were saying no. And eventually most of the signers of the Barman Declaration did leave the state church, they were, which was Lutheran, in some places Lutheran and Reformed, and and founded a group called the Confessing Church Movement. And, um, you know, that still exists, actually, in Germany. Uh, but it was a pushback against loyalty to Hitler and the Nazi Party on the part of Christians. And this brings up something, too, and that is that the Catholic Church, the bishops of the Catholic Church in Germany, um, signed a concordat with Hitler. But that didn't make all Catholics um, Nazis, did it? I would say no. no. And so, you know, to me, that's kind of an analogy to this. Uh, yeah. So how is it? So you're saying it, it's an analogy, but help, help me to see how the Catholic Church response to Hitler informs what we're thinking of now. Yeah. So as as Hitler became more who he really was, as he let it out more and more who he was, a lot of Catholic uh, priests and, and parishioners backed away and even bishops backed away from Hitler, in spite of the Catholic Church with the permission of the Pope signing this concordat, that as long as the Catholic bishops didn't criticize Hitler, Hitler would protect the Catholic Church. So there was that agreement. But, um, you know, that was made at a time when Hitler really, for whatever strange reasons, wasn't understood as who he would turn out to be and really was. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, most of the Catholics in Germany, you know, backed away from Hitler and said, oh, yeah, we don't agree with a lot of what he's doing. But just the fact that at the beginning anyway, in the early years of 1930, they did, doesn't define Catholicism, you see. Mm-hmm. Catholicism is a spiritual, Got theological I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Right. So so the so you're saying that you want to kind of stick with the uh, evangelical word or label, so yeah. to speak, because you don't want to cede it, C-E-D-E. Right. Uh, you don't want to cede yeah. it to the political realm. Right. That's, I've said that on my blog quite a few times. And much to the chagrin of some of my students and colleagues and friends. Um, and then I ask them, well, what, what, what would you call yourself? If someone says, what kind of Christian are you? What, what are you going to say? And I, I can't think of a better term than evangelical. If someone asks me, okay, Olson, what kind of Christian are you of all the various kinds? I'm an evangelical. And then, and then I'm, you know, denominationally, I'm a Mennonite. I belong to the Mennonite church. Um, I'm also Baptist, which is a kind of funny thing. I'm duly affiliated mm-hmm. yeah. right now. Right. And so I can go there. But, my, but, but before that, I'm an evangelical. Not all Baptists or Mennonites are evangelicals. I am. And so I can't give it up. It, it just is too meaningful and uh, too much a part of my personal identity as to who I am right. to give up. And all that to say, Roger, this discussion is pertinent because evangelical has been co-opted, rightly or wrongly, by news media and or former mm-hmm. President Trump and Make America Great Again. It's all lumped in together at the same thing. Right. And you know, I'm not happy with the media for not uh, acknowledging pub- more publicly uh, that there are um, leading evangelicals who are not part of that. The National Association of Evangelicals, which is, consists of 50 denominations and many, many organizations, has not 
come out supporting Trump or any political party or any political platform or agenda. And uh, Christianity Today, the main magazine of American evangelicalism, has been pretty critical of Trump, actually. And uh, the media has sometimes mentioned those things, but very rarely have they let it really affect how they use the word evangelical. Right. And, and so the danger is, of course, that we co-op ourselves to a political movement or to a political party as followers of Jesus Christ, as evangelicals, then we c- carry the tide, right or wrong, up or down, with those politics. Yeah, because we've sold ourselves out. Yep. Right. And it in history, it has happened the other way, too. So back in the early 20th century, there was a movement called the social gospel. And of course, you know, that term still resonates with some people. But the social gospel leaders, um, ministers like Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch and others um, did make the same mistake. They did kind of try to tie Christianity uh, to a, a social political agenda, namely socialism. And uh, I don't think they really succeeded, but there was a time when many mainline Protestant denominations and churches really were so tied into the social gospel that you could have said back then, oh, well, mainline Protestant Christianity is socialist. Yes. It wasn't, and it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Because it's bigger than that. Yeah. It's much bigger, right. And I think for all of us, whether you call yourself an evangelical or a Christ follower, whatever terminology you choose to to use, a Bible-believing Christian, I think all of us are surprised to find ourselves back at this particular moment when we thought we had shed this decades earlier. It's an odd time, Roger. Yes, just this past Sunday in my sermon, I identified myself and and others as God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. But boy, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I'd rather just say evangelical, but of course, you can't anymore in America. But I want to go back to the first point I made, and that is the media is misleading people to think that evangelicalism is an American phenomenon, yes. and mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah. It's a worldwide, it's a worldwide phenomenon. phenomenon. Far more evangelicals around the world than there are here in America. Many, many more, Yes. That's Dr. Roger Olson, Emeritus Professor of Christian Theology at Baylor University. You can check out some of Roger's more than 20 books, including The Story of Christian Theology and The Journey of Modern Theology. Roger, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. We'll take a quick break. We're just getting underway with a Monday edition of The Ride Home. We're going to talk about uh, addiction to screen time. We think we're addicted here in America. Could it be worse somewhere else? The most significant thing to happen to the human race this millennial so far has been the proliferation, the explosion of the Internet, particularly through smartphones. Right? Mm-hmm. I think everybody listening. You kidding me? What do you think? Uh, who has a flip phone versus who has a smartphone? What do you think the percentage of that is? You mean just people who have phones? No, like, you know, I, you've got a smartphone. I've got a smartphone. Lex has a smartphone. Most people have a smartphone, whether it's an iPhone or, you know, it's. I think it's a very small percentage of people that are sticking to the flip. The analog. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a new study out about phone usage around the world. We think that we are the champions, just, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, with phone usage. Here's a new uh, thing from uh, a company called datareportal.com. Here's some key findings. South Africans spend the most time on desktop and mobile, averaging 10 hours a day (gasps) per Internet user. Brazil 
Philippines, Argentina, Colombia also average more than nine hours a day. Really? South Africa wins the award for most internet usage via a computer with 4.5 hours per day. Russia, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia were also quite close. The Philippines spend the most times on their phones, averaging more than six hours per day, followed closely by Brazil, Thailand, South Africa, and Indonesia. The United States, we're not even close. You're kidding me. Mm-mm. How about that? Ten hours a day if you're in South Africa. I can't even imagine how that's possible. I just think it's always on, always looking, always searching. What kind of life do you have? I mean, you and I, I'd say you and I are pretty bad. Yes. Right? Admittedly so. Absolutely. If you didn't do this for a job, would you spend nearly as much time? Well, I want to say no. Of course I wouldn't. But I don't really trust myself. What is it? Don't you feel empty when you're done? Yes. Yes, for sure. But there's, especially when it comes to the answering of a question I have. I love it so much. It's like, I I can't get enough of it. Right. You know, we're watching, I'm watching the two football games last night, right? (laughs) Yeah. And anything comes up. I'm like, wait, wasn't he hurt earlier in the season? Pick up your phone. Right. Look at it. Wait a minute. I thought, didn't he play for another team? What team? Pick up your phone. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really wonderful to have that type of access. I know. So we're, we're at the end of the and football And I'm curious, games. as you are, you're always, you've always been a curious Wanna person. Want to know what's going on. So if, if we didn't have these jobs, I think we'd probably be on our phone every bit as much. Well, I'm watching a movie last night. We're on TCM. The heiress is on. You ever seen this film? <laughs> Ralph Richardson, Olivia de Havilland. It's a fabulous film. It's one of the greatest films in the history of... It's an old book, an old stage play from 1949. Okay. I fall into this hole. I'm looking at Ralph Richardson. I stop looking at the movie. Oh, because now, now you have to learn everything about Ralph Richardson. The movie's going on. I mean, I've seen this movie probably 15 times okay. easily. And I'm, you know, I fall into a rabbit hole with Ralph Richardson. Now, I do remember this. Remember the almanac? Farmer's almanac? No, it was kind of like the yearly almanac. And it was kind of like... A book of lists or, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't a thing that we had. We had it every year. My dad bought this. My dad was like the original. He'd go, hey, do you know whose birthday? Blah, blah, blah. He'd sit there for hours and reading tidbits, mm. facts and figures, which is the analog version of right. the Internet. Sure. Right. So he was doing that back in the 60s or the 70s, reading the Daily Almanac. And so now we just have quicker access, the ease of the operation. This is the Daily Almanac and more in our our fingertips. But what you just said, I have fallen into more than once, and it's really bothering me. The whole. That I'll I'll sit down to watch something that I'm actually really enjoying, and somehow I get sidetracked by having to come up with some ancillary information about either someone or something, that now I'm missing the thing that I sat down to watch. The football game. When the football game sort of lost its mojo, the first game especially, mm-hmm. you kind of go, okay, I fell into a hole. And I'm not even watching the game anymore, although right. I'm sitting in front. So, well, remember you told me about Eric? Yes. How he would rail against two screens? My husband, yes. Are we watching this screen yes, or that he screen? he absolutely hates that. I get it. He absolutely hates that. And in fact, whenever I'm watching the second screen, <laughs> he says, who are you talking to? <laughs> Great and fabulous. <laughs> 
Nothing like being shamed, right? Okay, we'll take a quick break. Come back. We're just getting underway. Monday show. The Responsibility of Grace. Tom Soroka joins us next here on The Ride Home. Grace. Grace is something that's so mysterious. I think often about grace, of how often, and then I go, well, I'm unworthy of grace. Which oh, means that's I'm, unmerited <laughs> favor, so yeah. I mean, grace. Father Tom Soroka is with us to talk about grace, and particularly the responsibility of grace. Father Tom, welcome back. Hi, guys. Nice to be with you. Always a pleasure, Tom. So grace is um, unmerited favor. That's the way I've heard it described. Tom, would you uh, second that? I would expand it a little bit. Um, In the Orthodox understanding, you know, this word grace um, really has to do, obviously, with gift. But in our theological understanding and also in what we're going to talk about a little bit with Matthew 22 and the whole idea of marriage. Uh, if Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride and the, the two of them give themselves to each other, right? So what we would see as grace is really God giving himself to us. So, it, and it, it's, maybe more for not for this conversation but we would see grace as god not simply looking favorably upon us but actually giving himself to us and that's how we become as peter says in his epistle partakers of the divine nature Mm -hmm. so grace and Tom, you referenced the uh, parable of the wedding feast. Want me to read it? Yeah, please. Okay. This is uh, this where, is the beginning yeah. Yeah. of Matthew 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll start at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. So come, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and they went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. 
tough. It's really, you know, the end of that is just so difficult. And, um, you know, in the big picture, right, Christ tells parables because he says he wants to differentiate between those who are really have open ears and who are really listening and those who really don't want to hear. They don't want to know. They don't want to understand. So if you look right at the end of of Matthew 22, after this parable, he confronts the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right, uh, about their teaching, about their hypocrisy. So the first part of the parable is really he's he's telling the story of all of salvation history, right? That's what Jesus is, is saying here, is that God has been reaching out to humanity and he does it first by those who are invited to the wedding verse three and they are not willing to come so who are those those that is the jews the jews are the ones that god calls originally as his chosen people and it says they're not willing to come and then he says in verse four then he sends out other service tell those who are in servants those who were invited saying see i've prepared my dinner my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready come to the wedding so those are the prophets the prophets are sent out by god to call israel back to this wedding feast which is this union of of god with his people and it says they made light of it and they went their ways and they were worried about sort of physical things like their farm and their business. And and Jesus himself accuses the Jews of this. It says, verse six, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. Right. Jesus told them, you killed the prophets. You killed the ones that God sent to you. And of course, they're going to kill him, too. And then verse seven, the king hears about it. He's furious. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. In other words, the the bad things that happened to the Jewish people were on account of their their sinfulness, account of their you know disobeying God. Even um, Jewish teachers today, uh, Orthodox Jews, will tell you the same thing that you know they were dispersed, they were uh, taken uh, uh, away into Babylon, they were made slaves in Egypt because of their disobedience. So what happens is in verse eight, it says, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So they go out and they find, it says both good and bad. <laughs> and that's the Gentiles. That's those who were not originally invited, but now God says, I'm going to invite everybody. So great right like that's that's really good news that the, the the gentiles are not originally called but it's pure grace they're not god's people but now they're made to to come to this banquet and then this verse 11 just smacks you in the face and it says when the king came to see the guests he saw a man who didn't have a wedding garment so the first question is what is 
the wedding garment, right? Mm -hmm. And and we said that the wedding is this union of God and man. We hear about it uh, in, um, for instance, Ephesians 5, right? Ephesians 5, we talk about what is a marriage, and he talks about all the things that a man or woman has to do in a marriage, but then he says, but... I really take this to mean Christ and the church, right? Like marriage is really just a, a, an image of the more important thing, which is the union between Christ and his believers. And we even hear it in Revelation 19. We hear in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. The, that is the union between Christ and his bride. And here's another kicker. Even in Isaiah 61, you have this garment of salvation. Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of gladness. So back to the parable. You don't have a wedding garment, verse 12. And it says he was speechless. So the question is, what is the wedding garment? The wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. The wedding garment is the grace that we're given at our uh, initial relationship with Christ, at our this initiation of baptism. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? We have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. So here's, here's the, the bottom line. Grace, which is given to us freely, is given to us as, as you said, Kathy, as, as unmerited favor. Uh, and I would say it's, it's God himself uniting himself to us. It still requires something. And it requires this response that we keep this garment clean, that we, as it says uh, earlier in Ephesians, that we walk in the the good works that we are that are already prepared for us but we have to walk in them and this is i would sort of call it like the cost of grace mm -hmm. you know grace is given to us freely but there's a responsibility and the responsibility is so important that at the end of the parable it says the king said to his servants bind him hand and foot take him away cast him into outer darkness for many are called, but few are chosen. If you get the grace of God, you better walk in it. Hmm. That's wow. so good. That's really good, Tom. I got to be honest. I've never heard an explanation of that parable. Yeah. And I never really... that. It, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like that's consistent with the, uh, with the scriptures. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's frightening, <laughs> right? It's frightening to read this. So, like, we read this once a year in our church, and I always think, like, wow, like, you know, you want to preach the love of God, and, and we, we do, right? God loves us. God gives us everything freely. But you have to read all of it. And as you're reading Ephesians, you know, St. Paul is saying all of these things, like he's saying, don't do like this. Don't behave like that. He says, because you were once walked among the Gentiles, but you no longer walk among them. You have to, you have to behave as 
Christ behaves. You have to behave. You have to be like God, kind and merciful and gentle and pure. And so this this uh, robe of righteousness that we have, we still have to walk in it. I'm into that. Father Tom Soroka, he's the pastor at St. Nicholas Orthodox Church, McKees Rocks. Tom, uh, talk to us about St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas Orthodox Church is located right off the McKees Rocks Bridge, off the Helen Street exit. And uh, we have a lot of stuff going on. We just have so many good things, Bible studies and services and men's group, women's group, mom's group, a wonderful church school. So we would love for people to come and visit, even if you've never been to an Orthodox service before. I know some people aren't familiar with it. Don't don't be shy. Come and worship with us. Glorify Christ, uh, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, We want to meet you and we want to. Uh, get to know you. So orthodoxpittsburgh.org. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much. God bless you. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Happy National Hot Sauce Day, John. Yeah, thank you. We celebrate that. Um, those uh, who love hot sauce around the globe, uh, January 22nd, a big day. Uh, I know that you are a hot sauce fan. Mm-hmm. I've seen you imbibe more than once. Yes. Uh, you have a favorite brand or variety? Uh, you know what? <laughs> Currently, I, I saw this on our calendar. Currently in our fridge, I would say we have anywhere between six to nine different bottles of hot sauce. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six to nine. Wow. Yeah. And it runs from, you know, the, the, the standard bearers, Franks. you know, Franks or Louisiana, right, to, you know, some esoteric kind of smoky or super hot. I had no or, idea. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not me driving this. This is my kids. Right. Okay. Which is fine by me because they're out there going, got to try this, got to try that. I like a little smoke with my hot sauce. So do you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you have a favorite variety? Not particularly. Okay. You're just no. open to... Like tonight, we're going to have what we call a Chipotle meal. Yeah. Where my kids, my, one of my kids makes this. All it is is like, you know, saffron rice with uh, peppers and, you know, uh, the mix with little chunks of meat. Okay. There. And then you throw the hot sauce on top of that. Uh, really? Whatever's out there. There's, you know, five or six bottles on the table. And I go, give me some of that. Let me try some of that. Lexi, are you a hot sauce fan? Hot sauce? Because, you know, there's a big variety at the grocery store. Oh, right? my gosh. Look, I, I would love hot sauce. Oh, uh-huh. do you? Yeah. Okay. It's Do you delicious. watch? Have you seen the YouTube show Hot Ones? Oh yes. yes. Oh, I love me some Hot Ones. Fabulous I show. love that show. That's such a great idea. Isn't it a great idea? And the guests are outstanding. They are. Yeah. And people are the the original idea of it was if people are eating hot wings, yeah. then they're going to be so concerned about how hot the food is that yeah. they're consuming that they're going to be able to answer questions right. in a more honest way with an interviewer. It's a good premise. And it's a great premise, and it's obviously taken off enormously. Yeah. If I have an extra 20 minutes like before my husband and I go to bed, yeah. let's watch a hot ones. Yeah. Because okay. the people are hilarious. Are. And it's just a really funny idea. It is. And some people get angry. You know, the the fur- so hot. The further they get in. Some people start to cry. Some people are like lamenting life choices. I mean it's just kind of it's very revealing it of personality. Really is. There's not a place to hide. Now I was never a fan of hot sauce. Oh, until, really? No, I really wasn't. Until I went to Nashville about a year ago, yeah. and I had the hot chicken mm. in Nashville, and it is so incredibly mm-hmm. awesome yeah. that now I'm in. Okay, so are you doing wings with hot sauce? No, I don't eat wings. Oh, 
but I like hot sauce on rice. Yeah. I like it on scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. And I really like it on chicken when I'm in Nashville. Do you have variety? Do you have like at home? Just have Frank's. That's Frank's. That's all I got, John. I mean, who can say no to that? I don't think you can say no to that. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Monday edition, 5 o'clock hour here, The Ride Home. Big news politically. I mean, here we are. Yeah, Ron DeSantis is out of the race on the Republican side. Um, Reading a story from Politico today. Uh, Of course, Nikki Haley supporters were geeked about it. Uh, They cheered when she relayed the news at an event on Sunday. Uh, But his exit from the race, according to the news site, and his endorsement of Donald Trump could make her quest to injure or topple Trump in New Hampshire on Tuesday far harder. Um, Mike Dennehy, who is a GOP strategist, this is what he says, John. He says DeSantis dropping out virtually eliminates any chance Haley has at keeping Trump under 50 percent. There's a chance now that Trump could get 60 percent of the vote in New Hampshire. Now, up until this all happened, New Hampshire had been the early state where Trump looked weak. Right. Not anymore. Uh, Haley had surged in surveys. I was feeling I I guess I need to come clean about this. Um, I'm a Republican and uh, I'm not a Donald Trump fan. And I would be thrilled to throw my support behind Nikki Haley. Um, And uh, my question is that when DeSantis leaves the race, similar to when Ted Cruz left the race back in what, 2020, I can't understand after Trump treats them so wretchedly, and especially think about Ted Cruz. Remember when Trump was saying that his dad was involved in the assassination yep, of, JFK. of JFK? And his wife. I mean, and it, oh, I forgot about his yeah. wife. Yeah. He, he said mocked his wife. Absolutely wretched things about his wife. I can't believe these guys then throw their support behind him. I Politics just don't, strange I don't bed get fellows. it. I don't either. I mean, it's a really weird thing. I just don't understand. So here it is. Do you think tomorrow's going to be? I would say tomorrow it's a done deal moving forward that, of course, a surety that Donald Trump will be the nominee. I hate to say anything about that because the vote has not taken place yet. I hate that. Okay, so let me ask you this. So say that you're a DeSantis fan and you were on his bandwagon. DeSantis drops out of the race and DeSantis endorses Trump. Are you automatically going to vote for Trump? Well, I think the, the... a lot of people are. Really? Just because the guy you liked I think so. says... Especially put, with DeSantis, because he was kind of like Donald Trump. He was hoping 2.0, which, of course, he never was, never could be. So, yeah, I think, oh, you might have tried a different flavor for a little bit, but I'll go back to the original source. I, I just can't... I, I think it's haughty, I'm to presume that you're just going to be able, like, people are going to listen to you and just go vote for that guy. Well, I think people are dyed in the wool. This is this is my. Person. I know. Okay, but, okay, but if but if DeSantis is your person, to me, you would be more likely to go for Nikki Haley than you are with Donald Trump. That's why we're not involved in politics, right? It's very very strange. I, I don't understand it at all. I don't presuppose to know anything about it. I know what I like, what I'm invested in, and it's not that. 
Uh, after winning the Iowa caucuses with more than 50 percent of the vote on Monday, says Politico, Trump entered the weekend long sprint to the New Hampshire primary polling above that same marker mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. Yeah. So tomorrow, the New Hampshire primary, the first primary. Right. It's a done deal. There's no doubt about it. What, that Trump's going to be the nominee? Yeah, 100 percent. Despite any legal troubles or indictments or felony counts or whatever, this is this is where we are. It's a rematch of Biden-Trump once again. And I say, heaven help us. I grew up in a mainline Protestant denomination, and it was a big part of my... Uh, my whole the formation of my worldview as a kid it really was um but i you know i grew up in the 70s and 80s and i, I guess everybody thinks this way but th- things things were different then and mainline denominations were different then of course i was different then um seeing the latest numbers from our friend ryan burge over the weekend i was really shocked um at the level of support that the mainline denominations have and so to kind of break that down for us we've invited ryan back on the show brian is the assistant professor of political science at eastern illinois university his research appears on the site religion in public so you do tweet regularly also the author of several fine books ryan but to talk to us about the, the piece that you wrote about it's hard to be optimistic about the mainline. Yeah. So um, first of all, I have to say I'm a mainline Protestant. So everyone, I'm not dancing on someone else's grave. I'm dancing on my own grave. I've been yeah. a pastor in the American Baptist Church for uh, almost 20 years now. So um, this is not throwing a critique at someone else. It's, it's definitely lobbing it on my own head. The mainline is... Um, Groups like the American Baptist Church, which I'm a part of, United Methodist Church, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ, um, Disciples of Christ, they used to dominate American life. There's data in the 1950s that half of all American adults were mainline Protestant in the, ni- in late, in the late 1950s. Today, the share of Americans who are mainline Protestant is about 10%, uh, down from 30% in the 1970s. And um, here's, the, here's the worst part uh, of all that stuff. If you look at data... The share of Americans who are mainline Protestants between 18 and 35 years old, which gives you a good sense of like where a denomination is going. In the 1970s, about 10% of all American adults were mainline Protestants between 18 and 35. Today, it's about 1.5% of all mainline Protestants are uh, between 18 and 35 years old. I mean, it's almost become a rounding error at this point. Wow. A tradition that used to dominate is now on the on the way to extinction incredibly rapidly. So when I saw, I read your piece over the weekend, Ryan, when I saw that the figure was, what, what was it, one point what? 1.5% of American adults. I mean, yeah. that mm-hmm. is, the, I, I thought that has to be a typo. I thought that's... Maybe it's 11, you know, which is still like incredibly small. But the fact that it's one, I mean, how do we, that is such a spectacular fall. Yeah, and and here's what makes it yeah, even worse in a lot of ways. If you look at the age distribution of the Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. half of all Episcopalians have seen their 65th birthday now. Wow. Um, half. Half. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's really hard to to come back from that for all sorts of very like demographic reasons. For instance, 65 year olds are not having children. Um, that's not the way it works. You want to have young people in your church. You really want to have 
more young people than you have older people because you've got to replace people who die. So that's got to be a one-for-one replacement just to stay even. But we also know that the mainline has a big problem with retention. And that's just the idea that people who were raised in the mainline will stay mainline Protestants as they move into adulthood. And now we know about 40% of people raised mainline Protestant do not stay mainline Protestant into adulthood. So you're not even offsetting the losses from death in a lot of these traditions. And now you're losing 40% of your young people and fewer and fewer people in your pews are actually having children now because they're older. And it's just, I mean, every possible metric there is headed in the wrong direction for the mainline. So any data, Ryan, and I know this is a very different question, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyway. What contributed to this fall? Oh, man. Uh, you know, this is something that, that social science loves to kind of to bandy about, and, and theologians do, too. Um, a lot of evangelicals say the problem with the main line is it never really differentiated itself from the rest of the world. Um, you know, that's really one of the reasons that evangelicalism has done okay in the last 50 years is because it creates a very clear delineation between us versus them. Let's be separate from the world. And the main line has always been sort of the moderate flavor of American Christianity, where it says, you know, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Bible. We're going to do a little less of the hell conversation. We're going to be a little bit more moderate on some social issues. And a lot of evangelicals look at that and go, how are you different than a country club? Um, You're not really making it hard to be part of your... And what we know is social science, by the way, is hard religion does well. If you demand a lot of people, the people are not going to leave. They're going to stick around for a long, long time. And if you don't demand a whole lot of them, a lot of them are going to kind of leave and and retention is going to go down over time. And so here we are, right? I mean, the rise of the nuns, which you've talked and written about before, you show this. Uh, It's hard to, to refute this. The numbers are the numbers, Ryan. It's it's some I mean, I give a lot of talks now to different denominational leadership. And um, the one thing, the constant like comment I get beforehand is, could you be a little more positive? Mm. And um, I kind of have to laugh at that because it's like, so do you want me to lie or do you want me to not tell you the whole truth? Like, what do you want me to do exactly? Because I have to be, I mean, I listen, the last thing I want to do is go into a room and bum everyone out. That is not my design in life. But at the same point, the numbers are the numbers are the numbers. And ignoring them is not going to make them go away. So one thing I tell a lot of leaders in a lot of these traditions is, you know, you want to do strategic precision surgery when you have plenty of time to do that. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if someone retires, don't replace them. Right. If you can trim a program back 3% or 5% budget over several years, you're going to make a big cut over a long period of time. No one wants to do an emergency amputation. That's not the way to organize, you know, organizationally restructure yourself because you're going to have to cut people who are great. You're going to have to cut programs you really need. So it's better to steer the ship now knowing what's going to happen in 15 or 20 years instead of keeping your head in the sand and saying, la-di-da, it's going to be just fine. We're gonna, we can keep doing what we're doing because obviously the data says you cannot keep doing what you're doing. The no- donations are going to eventually dry up, and you're going to have to make some major wholesale cuts to your denomination, if not close entirely, but you can make better strategic decisions now by looking at the numbers. That's Ryan Burge. He's the author of 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America and the Nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. Uh, Ryan, here's another question that, again, is going to rely on a whole other sample size, so feel free if you don't, you know, if you you're not ready to answer this, but my question is, where'd they go? So if did people leave mainline denominations and go to other denominations? Did they go to, did they go to non-denominations or did they become nuns? Yeah, so the answer is it's sort of both and. Um, a lot of them went from the mainline to the nuns. 
Um, but a lot of them went from mainline to evangelicalism. That's a sort of a surprising thing is mm-hmm. I kind of call it like the Red Sea moment we've had in American religion over the last 30 or 40 years. It used to be we had plenty of people in the middle of American religion, moderate mainline Protestants. And what's happened is they've sort of been cleaved, you know, pick left or right, go this way or that way, become a nun or become an evangelical. And in a, a larger number became nuns, but a significant number became evangelical. And if you look at, you know, every uh, Protestant family in America, so Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian, every one of them's down over the last 15 years. The only one that's not down over the last 15 years is non-denominational. Um, non-denominationals are growing incredibly rapidly. There are at least 22 million of them in the United States today, which makes them the largest Protestant denomination, quote-unquote, in America. Uh, almost 15% of all American adults today are non-denominational. It was 3% in the early 1970s. It's the kind of, to me, the two biggest stories in American religion are the nuns, which we, you know, we talk about all the time, went from 5% to 30%. But the nons are the second biggest story, went in, going from 3% to 15% during that same time. Period. So it's not like Protestant Christianity is, is completely dying. It's definitely getting smaller, but it's also being radically remade by mm-hmm. people moving away from traditional denominations and institutions and, and becoming non denominational. Right. Now, Ryan, before you joined us, we talked about this a little earlier in the show. When you say evangelical today, some people think evangelical is a Christ believer, a Bible believing Christian, or evangelical can also be I'm a political guy. Uh-huh. That's that's what uh, I think is going to be on my headstone when I die. Ryan Burge <laughs> is the guy who coined the term culturally evangelical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and these are evangelicals who go to church less than once a year. Seldom or never is what they say on surveys. Um, in 2008, 16% of all self-identified evangelicals went seldom or never. Today, it's 27% of all self-identified evangelicals go less than once a year. Probably will grow to 30% in the near future. Um, which is staggering if you think about it. Here's that doesn't even make sense. any sense. How can you even I call yourself doesn't. anything like that once a year? Yeah, well, so here's something else interesting that's in the data. There are more and more Republicans calling themselves rural when they live in suburban and urban areas because they want to see themselves like those are my people. Rural people are Republican people, so therefore I'm rural because I'm Republican. The same thing's happening with evangelical. I'm evangelical because I'm a Republican. So basically, you know, I say this all the time. Politics has become the master identity. Partisanship is the master identity. So if you say you're a Republican, then you start saying, well, okay, I like the NRA and I like the evangelical label. And I'm a rural person, you know, you live in a, you know, a suburban Charlotte, North Carolina or whatever, because you want to look like you're a completely unified person. Everything lines up behind that identity. And with evangelicalism, it's really become a, a political moniker anymore. And here's an interesting stat. I just posted this today on my Substack. When John McCain ran for president in 2008, 6% of all his votes came from self-identified evangelicals who attended less than once a year. For Donald Trump, it was 11% of all his votes came from cultural evangelicals, those who attend seldom or never, and probably going to go higher than that this year. So this, and by the way, white Catholics were 16% of Trump's coalition and cultural evangelicals were 11%. So at some point in the near future, they're going to overtake white Catholics as important to the GOP. That's crazy. That is just crazy. It doesn't make any sense just, at all. I mean, uh, right. So it seems like people, and I know that, you know, I've studied language enough to know that language is it. always evolving. And, I, and you know, I get that. I'm not railing against it. But it, it, it does seem odd that you're going to have some, you know, uh, MAGA person who lives in Chicago who wants to call themselves rural or evangelical yeah. um, because they want to identify with their ideological group. 
That's that's exactly that's the thing I have to tell people because what we're seeing also is a rise in is, is evangelical Catholics, evangelical Jews, evangelical Muslims, uh, and people go, you can't be that thing, and I go, why not? <laughs> you you don't own words. Just what Kathy said, we don't own words. They mean whatever you think they mean. So my job as a social scientist is not to say, oh, you can't be an evangelical Catholic. It's to try to figure out why you check the box, I'm Catholic, and then later check the box saying, I'm evangelical. You are telling me something about yourself, and it's my job as a social scientist to figure out. And by the way, the data points over and over. This is not a random error in surveys, by the way. Everyone goes, oh, they're just mashing buttons and not paying attention. Then why is it that Republicans always pick the evangelical option at higher rates than Democrats do? It's because... Because the word evangelical now means I like Donald Trump, I like the GOP, I'm a political conservative. An evangelical Muslim. So wacky. <laughs> Again, Ryan, it's a wild world. We don't own words. Yeah. And you know what? People tell me what they are. You know what Maya Angelou said? When people tell you who they are, believe them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, that's, and that's my job, to yeah. believe them. So what is that like for you? I mean, you're a numbers guy, a stat guy, a graph guy. But also when you talk about this, you're deeply emotional about this. I mean, you know, you sort of straddle two worlds here. Yeah, it's. I try my very best in my analysis to be as level-headed and clear-eyed as I possibly can be. I try. I try to just get to the an, the best answer I can statistically and methodologically. And I really don't care if that gives one side ammunition to lob bombs at the other side or not. It, it makes no difference to me. The most operative question I have is: Did I do it right? Did I do the methods right? Did I do the stats right? Did I code right? Did I graph right? Did I visualize right? And then everything else after that is really on the audience to figure out what does this mean for me and what do I have to do? Now, I have some values that I care about. I think that religion's a cause for good in the world. I think pluralism is also a good thing. I think democracy thrives on compromise, uh, not on people who are unwilling to go across the aisle. And what I see in the data over and over again is it's almost amazing that democracy has endured for so long in this country. Uh, I'm, I'm more worried for America um, now than yes. I've been in my entire mm-hmm. adult life. And all the trend lines I see are pointing in, in, in a very negative direction. I try to be a positive person, uh, but man, there's lots of things happening in America right now that I think uh, are worrisome for us. We are a very resilient country. We've survived, you know, the Great Depression. We've survived the Civil War. We survived World War II. We will survive this. I don't know how, but I believe in the American public and I believe in democracy and and we'll make it through. Well, we'd love to have you come back next January to sort of talk about <laughs> where we are right. and what the year it's been, uh, Brian. Right. Or to, uh, well, or to be our well, therapist, maybe. That's another well, option. Only one third of people want a Biden-Trump rematch, and that's exactly, exactly what, what we're going to going to have one third so yeah god bless america dr ryan burge has been with us Uh, ryan before you leave us i was reading as i said your article over the weekend on your Substack because i'm a subscriber talk to people about that and how they can become like me yeah, it's called Graphs About Religion. Uh, graphsaboutreligion.com. I started it back in April, and man, it has just been the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, I've got almost 7,000 free subscribers now. Uh, I'm on track to get over 900,000 views in the first year. You can go on graphsaboutreligion.com, sign up for a free account. You'll get uh, a free post every week, and then there's a paid post every other week. You'll get most of the content for free. And then after three months, everything that was free goes behind a paywall. Uh, in the course of the first year, you're going to get 150,000 words and over 500 graphs written by me. So you're getting basically the, the, the cost of two books, about 50 bucks a year, ton of content about religion and politics and what it means for the future of America and the American church. So well done. Check out Ryan's books, 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America and The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. Ryan, good to talk to you Keep again. Keep it up. Excellent work, Ryan. Always a pleasure, guys. Appreciate you.
this make sense? Does what make sense? Heated socks. Now, I tell you that it's cold outside. We know this. My husband got my daughter heated socks. You charge them. And then you put the tiny power packs into your tall socks, and they heat yeah. up your pits. It doesn't make any sense. Your feet, aren't your feet warm enough? I mean, they generate heat. I don't even wear socks at home. Well, you know, I, I wear my little booties. You wear your booties at home. Yeah, of course cool. you do. I've been there. Those booties, it's like wearing two pillows on your feet. Yeah, they're nice. <laughs> That's nice. I can't believe. I look forward to the cold weather. They look the ridiculous. I don't even care. Okay. Lex, they look ridiculous. I want you to... They're right here in the office. I know. They look ridiculous. Uh, I... All I know is that uh, when my husband got the heated socks yeah. for my daughter for Christmas, they were on back order because they had sold so many really? that they were completely sold out of out? stock. No, your daughter, she suffers from cold feet? She does. Now, I, I want to be sympathetic to her situation. Of course. And if there's a remediation for whatever ails you, then go for it. And? She loves them. She, she does. She thinks they're the greatest. She just plug them in before she goes to bed. What? She wears heated socks to bed. She said this. She said, when I get married, which is going to happen over the summer, she said, I'm going to call my fiance, be my husband then, and say, hun, plug in my socks. <laughs> Different strokes. That, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sense. make any sense okay. to me. No, no, All right. no, no. All right, does this make sense? Polling. Right? People who, we just had Ryan Burr. A lot of, a lot of people, oh, can you call? I mean, I wonder what that's like now with cell phones. You I don't, don't know. To, but people, like, answer? How right. do, or, like, you go to vote and there's somebody outside wanting to poll. I think polling makes a ton of sense. What? Except in politics. I think polling's interesting, like about, we're talking about healthcare, maybe we're talking about, you know, uh, where you live, what you choose to drive, what you're watching or reading yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it makes a lot. Of, when you put it in politics, it just makes me mad. Like we've already decided that Trump's going to win the New Hampshire primary. It hasn't happened yet. Tomorrow. Can, why, let's just, can we just let people make up their own mind? Who's telling the truth? Because people go, well, it's a poller. I'm just going to go contrary to that. So can you trust the polls? I don't know, but I wish that we didn't have to deal with that. No polling when it comes to politics. But in movies, entertain, whatever. Great. It's fun. Sure. I think it's a great idea. Well, I agree. I mean, polling to me seems counterproductive. Yeah, right? I agree. I don't trust the poll. Right. It becomes predictive. Yeah. I don't want that. It's not a poll then. Heated socks. That also, make that's any crazy. Sense. State legislators here in the state of Pennsylvania have come up with a, I would call, novel idea to help reduce stress for students in K-12. Students in Pennsylvania, this is from CBS Pittsburgh, students in Pennsylvania may soon be allowed to take mental health days. The Pennsylvania House of Representatives Education Committee voted last Thursday to send the bill that would provide students in Pennsylvania with those days to the call chamber. Introduced by Representative Napoleon Nelson of Montgomery County in eastern Pennsylvania, he said in a memo that the House that cha challenges specifically those exasperated by the COVID-19 pandemic make this legislation necessary. Quote, few challenges are as urgent or pressing as the lasting impact of stress and emotional direction 
arrests on our students, end quote, his memo read. According to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the pandemic negatively affected the mental health of many children and youth, creating even more public awareness of this pre-existing problem. The bill, if passed, would allow students to take up three mental health days during the school year without a doctor's excuse. It will go to the call chamber where mm-hmm. it will be debated. And at some point, if it passes through, it will be voted upon by the full Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. What about three? Would that also be extended to teachers? No, this is just specifically mm-hmm. for students. Mm-hmm. You think st- teachers would need a heck of a lot more than mm-hmm. students. What are your thoughts? I like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. Why don't you like it? Well, because... And then I'll tell you why I like it. All right. Here's the deal. There's already... I mean, absenteeism is off the charts. Right. I mean, you look at who's showing up for school, more than 50% of the kids are missing major, major chunks of school. So this is just another excuse to miss school. I mean, I get it. Believe me, the pandemic did a lot of weird things to mental health for everybody, for everybody, and especially for kids. I know it's not been easy for kids. Mm Mm-hmm. But to allow them to miss three more days without a doctor's excuse, it just opens the door wide open. I feel like I feel kind of the way (laughs) I feel about this that I feel about immigration. (laughs) Do tell. (laughs) Which is that the reason that we have so much illegal, one of the reasons why we have so much illegal immigration is that our legal immigration system is so broken that people who want to do the right thing can't. And I feel like that is the same with our truancy situation when it comes to schools, which is I think kids need, especially post-COVID kids, and I'm not trying to be like a pansy about it, um, but I think that kids need to be able to say, I need a mental health day. And because it's something that's not available, now truancy is a huge, enormous issue. There are many things that contribute to the truancy problem, but I feel like making a legal way for students to be able to take time off is beneficial so that they're, they can stay home if they feel like they need it and it's okay with their parents without it being, I really need to be at school and I'm skipping. <laughs> Lex, I'm not convincing him. Listen to me. Wait a second. Remember when you were a kid? I do. And you're going to say to Stanley, your dad, <laughs> no. Dad, I'm taking a mental no, health No, of course. Okay, I'm telling Don Hall. Would, right. Hey, Don Hall, who's working three jobs. Right. I need a mental health day. He would laugh <laughs> at first right. and then pick me up and throw me out the back door. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. But it's not the same time that Don Hall and Stan Bletchards were doing their thing. It's not. And people are different. It's just different. It's not. And it's not going back to that. It's so, not going back to that. Just we were talking about school the other day. All right. You know, about how soft everybody is. Yes. Yeah. Look, but, I, okay, but here's the thing. This is a way. Do you see the analogy I'm drawing to immigration? I feel like sure. if, if people if people want to come into America, we need to 
get it so that people who are going to who want to obey the law can come in. I agree. It's so stupid right now. It's the government. It is the government, and it's so incredibly stupid. It's like the and, IRS. And, and we have waves of illegal illegal immigrants everywhere, and a lot of them probably would actually follow a path if we had one that made any sense. I feel like this type of mental health day is something that makes sense for kids right now. But let me also say, teachers absolutely have to be included in that. For people who don't know a teacher, uh, don't have a parent who's a teacher or a child who's a teacher or is a spouse who's a teacher, let me tell you that things are falling apart I'm sure. in our schools. God bless falling the teachers. Falling apart. It's- and teachers have all of a sudden become uh, the people who hand out breakfast, the people that make yeah. sure that you get lunch, and the people who make sure that you get dinner. They're, they've become the people that medicate your kids. You know, that's like, the, that's like the pharmacist. Well, you know, my mom or my dad doesn't make sure I get my whatever that I need, and so they're going to hand out medication. And some teachers they, are driving kids to and from school. Exactly. Oh, and by the way, let's carry a handgun. Right. And they're going to be your therapist. It's just... Every All of our ills in society that affect kids between the ages of 5 and 18 are being dumped on teachers. I agree. But at the same time, so seriously, teachers, so, look at the test scores. Kids are, can't read. Abysmal. They can't write. Nope. There's the, uh, the math scores are abysmal. You're right. So we're just going to open up the door and say. I'm not saying this is going to fix it. Oh, you I'm not things. saying this is going to fix it. I'm just saying you said thumbs up or thumbs down. I give it a thumbs, thumbs up. Thumbs down. Lexi. We need you, know you to weigh where, in. You know where Lex is going with this. She's doing a big thumbs up. Yeah, I am. Okay, Lex. Thumbs down, okay, you guys. Okay, why, why thumbs up for you? Why thumbs up for me? Yeah. Because uh, I remember being in high school, uh, mentally terrified to go into classes. Um, and currently, you know, I just talked. I just got a new PCP, and I was talking to her. Um and she was like, you. when I was telling her about, you know, anxiety, you know, what I want to kind of do to mitigate, you know, some of the things that I'm doing, my PCP goes, there is a huge mental health um, epidemic going on right now in the United States of America. Um, and so I think with all of those taken into consideration, I completely agree with Kathy that there needs to also be um, that same... Uh, privilege given to teachers as well, because teachers are going through a lot of stuff right now just to get through their day um, and to give them the option to say, OK, um, there's been a lot on my brain right now. I have so many things to do after school over the weekend. I have a job. Um, there's a lot of s- students are put into a really precarious situation with trying to make sure that they're um, like resumes look good for college applications and uh, trying to do so many extracurriculars so that way their college apps look good. We did that. Mm-hmm. We did that. Right. I, I just think that giving students that opportunity to also be kids, because even as a teenager, they're, you know, children. Don't Here's, give yes. your kid a phone. Yeah, that is That's true. Yes. Don't give your kid a phone. All three of us agree on that, right? Yes, okay. 100%. That yeah. creates all the anxiety, all the craziness. It does. All right? It does. Get rid of the phones right. and have people follow right. some discipline right. and do some hard right. things. Right. Show up. Right. But be prepared. He, right. But here's the problem. If, if, the, if mom and dad at home aren't going to enforce any of those things, 
uh, limited time on the phone, uh, limited time to go, go to school, do your homework, all those sorts of things, then kids are just kind of f- flailing around. And, and, the, and the only people, again, who are bringing discipline into that situation are the teachers who, again, we're putting more and more responsibility on. I mean, I, I don't know. We've just I, fallen I, off a cliff. We have, we, we, have, we have fallen off a cliff, but if there is a mental health epidemic, finding a way to address it has to be part of our plan, don't you think? Well, I don't think you address it by giving kids more free time to be at home and stay in their phones. What's the point of that? Three more days to oh, hang no, out. That, right? Three more days to I mean, hang I'll, out. I'll, I'll, what are you going to do? Give you a oh, point you're going to take okay, three days not, off and do what with those three okay, days? Lexi, feel free to not answer this question if this is too personal. But why were you afraid to go into class? Um, well, I, I had a lot of stuff to do. Um, one thing about me that... Uh, you should know is that I did so many ex- extracurricular activities because I wanted my college applications to look good. So my phone, um, for the longest time, if you spent a certain amount of time at a place, your phone would deem whether or not that was your home because of how much time you spent. And my phone thought my school was my house because I was there for eight plus hours a day really? every single day. I only went home to sleep. And then I would go into I would go to school. Um, I had marching band. I had mock trial. I had the musical. I had um, uh, several other things that I was doing. I was in tennis as well. Um, and then I would come home at like four or five o'clock. And then I would go to work at my part time job. Um, and I barely had time to do schoolwork in that situation. I had barely had time to hang out with my friends in that situation because I'm working all the time and trying to save money. Um, so having a mental health day, I'll be honest with you, when I was going to school, I took as many, like, I stayed home as much as, like, the, the, what is it? Um, like the limit was. Yeah, like, essentially, like, the limit to where I would not get in trouble, I took it. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, I need moments for myself to not look at anything school-related and not go into work. I needed that. Look, I mean, I get it. But here's the deal. You should be taught by the nuns. That's a whole other story. And then, and then, after the nuns were done, I went to a public school where we were paddled. You telling really? me? Yeah. Right? It's a different time. I it get is it. A di- right. But there were standards that were set yeah. that you had to adhere to by allowing kids more and more rope to just kind of like hang out and do whatever because you're not feeling right. I don't think that helps people be better people. Right. Do hard things and you'll be a better person. Okay. Let me say another thing from a teacher perspective. And that is that there are true, I, I'm, I'm calling it truancy, I'm putting that in air quotes, issues for, for teachers. So that teachers who are coming into work on a regular basis, like Monday through Friday, like you would expect, are dealing with teachers who are like 23 years old, just coming into the profession, who don't show up for work, who take off every other Friday or whatever. Well, how do you so, do that? so that's an issue too. Sure. Is, and I, this is where I'm, I'm trying to give you a prop here, because I think that 23-year-olds who are going into a teaching profession have not been made strong enough to be actual teachers in the profession. So that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Right? We're just going to be a dog. We're going to spin and yeah, chase yeah, the yeah, tail, yeah, chase yeah, the yeah, tail, yeah, yeah. chase so, the tail. Yeah. So in that respect, I can see. So if they're not responsible enough or they don't have enough emotional wherewithal uh, or or you know, psychological wherewithal to show up for work Monday through Friday because teaching is hard. Um, and the teachers who are showing up are 45 years old and older, 
You know what I mean? And, you know, 22-year-olds aren't able to handle the gig. Uh, that's a problem, right? Well, because I, here's the thing. In 20 years, the 22-year-olds are going to be the only ones handling the gig. Heaven help us. I mean, seriously. Look, and then I, what happens I, Again, I get it. Things are difficult. We live in a weird situation. But a lot of it is of our own creation. So I don't think that you give kids a free pass and make things easier for them. I think you just have to work harder to get to get it together. And I'm sorry if people are suffering because of that. But more rope is not going to make yeah. things better for us. Look at other countries. Right? Other countries in this world have more rigid standards as far as education and study and work habits. We're like la-di-da another day at the beach. To our own detriment, we are a less of a society, less of a country because we're hanging out. And I think that, you know, we're so busy. I think that's self-created then be less busy and do those more specific things, those key things, better. Chanel Bell had no idea that a major gas leak, John, was brewing beneath her front yard in Philadelphia, but her dog, Kobe, was a very good boy. He seemed to know. Kobe is a four-year-old husky, and he dug a hole in the dirt outside of Bell's rental semi-detached townhouse in the Germantown neighborhood in mid-December. And Bell, Chanel, who is 28 years old, was perplexed by his behavior because she said, he's not a digger. He's never just randomly dug a hole. Although it was unlike him, Bell said she refilled the hole with dirt and moved on. But a few days later, Kobe had dug another hole in the exact same spot. Bell lives there with her eight-year-old daughter, and she was about to set up Christmas decorations on twenty-first and on December 21st. And so she brought the dog, Kobe, outside to accompany her. Soon, he started digging again. It totally threw me off, said Bell, who runs a small cleaning company. Uh, the dog stood beside the hole. His paws were all covered with dirt. And she looked at him and said, Kobe, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? He gave her a look, which she didn't interpret as a look of guilt or shame. But he kind of, she said, <laughs> looked proud of himself. Quote, you know, when a dog does something wrong and he knows he did something wrong, she said, he didn't give me that kind of look at all. He was giving me a look like, aren't you proud of me? I did it. So Bell thought perhaps maybe he did it for a reason. Now, the month prior, she had had a small gas leak from her heater. It was fixed, but she decided to get a handheld gas detection device to see if there were any other issues because it kind of freaked her out. So since she had recently uh, dealt with this, she said, I'm going to go up and get my reader and just put it in the hole and see if, I mean, that could be crazy, but I'll give it a try. She said, when I put that gas detector by the hole, it went off like crazy. So she called the Philadelphia Gas Works. They showed up to assess the situation, and they told her that her situation was potentially deadly. And even flipping on a light switch could have blown up her house. She said she was totally shocked. It was leaking from an underground street pipe, and it was directly underneath where Kobe the dog had dug the hole. How did he know? I don't know. So uh, they were able to come and they fixed it and everything and the location safe. But I guess the bigger question is, can dogs detect gas? So this Washington Post article contacts several uh, professionals and they say that, yes, dogs can detect gas, especially when something called mercaptan is present. It's a bad food smell. And those are smells that our dogs take a special interest in, said an expert. And so... 
some dogs also have been known to hear the whistling of uh, like a gas, like a very small leak in uh, in a pipe. That's a good boy. Isn't that a good boy? How many lives did he save? And uh, this person said, this expert who they uh, who the Washington Post contacted said, stories like this about dogs and gas leaks are more common than people realize. No kidding. And not only that, we know about the horrible situation in Plum, Ugh. right? We know about that. Um, authorities said that the leak could have been catastrophic. Like they already said for her house, but not just for her house, for the entire neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah, because they discovered that other pipes were also leaking, not just hers. Holy So it directly impacted her next door neighbor and also the neighbor across the street. I mean, isn't that... Well, so Kobe, a very, very good boy. Wow. You see the gas company, they drive around with these vehicles now. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. Like they have like little sort of like landmine things that stick out from trucks. They're looking for gas leaks. Oh, they drive I slowly seen that. through neighborhoods. Yeah. Maybe you just want to take your dog for a walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good story. Okay. Uh, here's another weird story about animals, not pets. Okay. Now, I, this is dubious to me because you hear this often. Much of the eastern United States can prepare for what what entomologists described as a spectacular macabre Mardi Gras this spring. Uh, the event, Jonathan Larson, who is an entomologist at the University of Kentucky, is referring to the simultaneous emergence of two giant cicada broods that will erupt from um, Virginia to Illinois mm. come late April through June. Periodical cicadas, which have the longest known insect life cycle, spend, of course, most of their life underground. But then every 13 to 17 years, they come up top for a brief adult life. A brood uh, constitutes multiple species of cicadas that merge on the same cycle. They say it's like a graduating class that has a reunion every 17 to 13 (laughs) years. And this is the year that these two broods are going to come together that should perhaps create a massive... Oh, I want to see it. Now you're what in your backyard? Well, no, but I would like. That's just fascinating. Gee. How did they know? I don't know. But you know, they've said this in the past. We go, okay, here okay. come the cicadas. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but then we've had listeners to the show who've said, well, they might not be in your area, but they right. sure are in our area. So okay. I don't. So I, I hate to, to get excited. I, I don't want to be excited. Oh no, I want to be excited. I don't want them in my no, backyard. I want to see it. The ride home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.